My name is Christian. Thank you, Jairus, for that incredible introduction. I paid him to say that. Um, I'm born and raised in Nairobi, Kenya. Came into this country as an international student a few years ago. And about four years ago, um, God divinely brought me to Mariner's Church. And I've been there for a while, and it's been just a great, uh, wonderful journey for me coming from Kenya and now being at this church. Now, while I was there two years ago, I met a blue-eyed blonde from South Dakota, and I asked her to marry me, and surprisingly, she said yes. And... um, (laughs) So, been married for about a year and a half now, and uh, in six weeks, we're going to be, ah, getting emotional about this, um, bringing our first child into the world. And, uh, ah, so I'm excited. I thank God for what he's done in and through my life. And so, being here with you this morning is just a privilege to be able to share God's word. Um, Now, one of the things, you know, as, as I said, I'm Kenyan. And so, can I go Kenyan on you a little bit? You know? So, you know, it's easy to get into the scriptures and to get into the, into the word. But I think there's something that I just want to do. First of all, is to stop at this particular point and encourage you and say, you know, the word of God says in Luke chapter 12, Do not be afraid, you of little flock, because it is the Father's will to give you the kingdom. It is the Father's will to give you the kingdom. The word of God says that one of you can chase a thousand and two of you can chase a legion. You know, and the word of God, I believe that, that greater things are yet to still be done in this city. Greater things. And God is going to use you. Today, this morning as I was listening to Melissa's story, Melissa, your story blessed me and encouraged me. I'm so grateful for who you are. And you're just one story of the many that God is going to do in each and every one of you. Melissa's story is just one of the stories that each and every one of you has. And God is going to do something drastic in Huntington Beach because of you that is sitting in this place this morning. And so I just want to start by encouraging you. And I'm so glad that I get to be a part of this wonderful church, uh, be friends with people like Jairus and, of course, Kevin, who I'm amazed that I can actually be in the same room with him and Julie because these guys are just wonderful and great people who've embraced me and loved me. And I feel so part of this community and this church. And so I'm grateful and I'm glad. Now, we're starting a series known as Radical Grace. And it's going to be uh, about, you know, we're going to be doing a few weeks on radical grace. And today we're going to stop and think about and start with uh, what is the scandal of grace? How scandalous is this grace that we have? Now, we're going to look at some parables. And some of us, you know, one of the things that I came to realize about America is that sometimes we lose awe and we lose the astonishment of who God is. So I see sometimes we're going to a place and God does something miraculous and we're just sitting back. You know, when God, when you hear these stories of people like Melissa, we just sit back and we've lost the awe of being able to stop and be amazed at the grandeur and the goodness of who God is. And this morning, as we look at these scriptures, we're going to look at something that we've probably seen before. And as we look at it, I just want us to stop for a moment and see how scandalous this grace is, how radical and how ridiculous Jesus is, even as he goes through this. So this is a passage that you've probably heard before, and probably say you know it, and you might even just tune off. But I ask you, I beg your indulgence to stay with me, even as we look at this parable. Now, let's look at, we're going to look at Luke chapter 15. um, And we're going to start from verses 1 to 3, and then we're just going to read as we go. Luke 15, 1 to 3, let's start there. Now the tax collectors and the sinners were gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats eats with them. Now, here we see two groups of people. You've got the tax collectors and the sinners who are one group. And then you've got the religious leaders and the teachers who are one group. Now, one of these groups, the religious associates, are known as the Habarim. 
And these are people who have devoted themselves to keeping and who are adherents of the law. And on the other side, you've got this other group called the Amharets, and these are the people of the land. And Jesus at this particular time is being accused of hanging out with the people of the land, the outcasts, the sinners, and these people that the religious people did not really embrace. And Jesus, as he is beautiful and brilliant, he goes into telling them three parables that try to break down some of these things that these people are thinking. And so we're going to look at those three parables, but I'm just going to summarize the first two. The first one, the first uh, uh, parable that he talks about, he says a man loses his sheep, he he has has 100 sheep, he loses one, and then he leaves the 99, he goes out, finds the one, comes back, throws a party. The other one is that there's a woman who has 10 coins, and when she loses one, she stops and turns her whole house upside down and looks for this one. And when she finds it, what does she do? She calls people and they have a wonderful big bash. Now, that's one, those are the two stories. Now, we're going to stop and look at this one that we call the prodigal son. And quite honestly, we've heard this story and of course we know it, we think we know it. But let us look at it and try and see if we can dig some um, new insight from this, uh, from this passage. So let us look at Luke chapter 15, verse 11 to, um, to 12. We'll start with 11 to 12. It says, Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Now, what is so significant here is that there was no provision for a Jewish man, for a Jewish boy, to ask for his inheritance before his father died. There was none whatsoever for somebody to ask for their inheritance before their father died. Now, notice that he doesn't even ask for inheritance. What does he ask? A portion of his estate. What that meant is that inheritance, if you ask for inheritance, if you had inheritance, it meant responsibility. It meant that you had to assume some leadership. It meant that you had to uh, defend the family. It meant there was some form of responsibility. But this guy, what does he do? He asks for his share because he did not want the responsibility that comes to it. Basically, this son asking for his possession was just in a nutshell saying, Dad, I wish you were dead. That is what he's saying. Can you imagine the shame and the pain and the hurt that the father goes through? That his son, while he's still alive, would wish that he were dead. Now, this story is not about a son who leaves his father. This story is truly a story about a God or a father who relentlessly pursues and responds in a very unexpected way. That's what this story is about. If you get nothing else from this story, this is what this story is about. And so the way the father responds is very important. And we're going to see how he responds severally. And one of the ways that he responds is that he instead decided to divide the family property and he's able to divide it amongst his two sons. Now, what is he supposed to do at that particular time? According to the Jewish laws, what the father was entitled to do was to actually take that son, renounce him, send him, beat him up, and send him out. But how does the father respond? He decides to call his two sons and divides his property. At that particular moment, he's alive, but he owns nothing. Because who does all the wealth belong to? His sons. This is how the father responds. Now, if we read verse 13, it says, Not long after that, Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off to a distant country where he squandered his wealth in wild living. Basically, he sold his property and moved to Vegas. (laughs) 
you know, and, and did all the things that are done in Vegas. And we know we don't want to talk about that here. Now, up to this point, what the son has done is that he shamed his father privately. But once he takes the property and sells it to especially a Gentile and loses what the family possession, what the family had for generations and generations, what he's done is that he's now embarrassed him and shamed him publicly. He had only done that privately. Now he's publicly declaring that I'm shaming my father and he walks away and he goes to on this wild rampage. Now, as one who's born and raised in Kenya, I understand the whole idea of land and laws of land because you pass on land from generation to generation. When he got married, my father decided to give us, at our wedding day, he said, son, I'm giving you a piece of a property of land for you and Delta to build on. And I know what that means. If I ever took that land and sold it, it would not only offend my father, it would offend my grandfather and the generations that were there past. This is what he was doing. He was not shaming, not only shaming his father publicly, he was actually even shaming the community. This is who the son is at this particular time. At this particular time, what the father is supposed to do is to perform a ceremony known as the cutting off ceremony. And the cutting off ceremony means to disown the son and no one in the community would ever, ever be able to talk to him again. This is what the father is expected to do. But what does he do? He doesn't. Now, let's continue reading. Verse 14 to 16, it says, After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and, he be- and there began to be need. So he went and hired himself out to, the, uh, to a citizen of that country who sent him to, sell, who sent him to his fields to, to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the paws of the pigs that were eating, but no one gave him anything. Now, when it says that he hired himself out, it's the word that he glued himself to, he attached himself to. Now, I don't know how many of you have seen this. I know in Kenya we do this as we're driving. Some people will come and start doing services for you, maybe cleaning your window or you guys in, in gas stations. When you come, when you go to a gas station, somebody comes and starts cleaning your, your windows without you asking them. Basically, they're trying to provoke you to generosity or shaming you into generosity. Now, in a shame-based culture, one of the things that you do not do is that you never shame somebody publicly. Now, where I come from in Kenya, um, because it's an honor and a, shame, and a shame culture, one of the things that we do here in America is when somebody comes in, we say, hey, when are you going or when are you leaving? That's one of the most, well, one of the most ridiculous and rudest things you could ever do in Kenya. Because when you ask somebody when they arrive, when are you going, that basically means how much time do you have with you and I send you away or I, don't, I can't stand you. So instead... <laughs> So we never say no to somebody, and we never tell them. We just find indirect ways of saying something. Ask Richard. He knows that. He's dealt with me when we're doing faith adventures. We do it in a very careful manner. And so what we would do instead, if somebody came to my house, and I wanted to ask him that kind of a question, I say, I'm so thankful that you're here. I hope you bless me and you bless my family for a while. At which the person will respond, actually, I'll be here for three days, and then you get the answer. But you never go directly at it. You never go directly at it because of shame and base culture. So when this, guy, when this guy goes and attaches himself to this citizen of the land, the man or the citizen of the land cannot tell him that I'm not going to give you a job. But he has to try and do something that will try and send him away. So what does he do? He gives him the most offensive job that you could ever do, give a Jewish boy. And what is that? Feeding pigs. Because he knows that this guy will obviously say no. 
And that's his way of saying no to this guy. But what does he do? He's so desperate. He's so caught up in it that he decides to take on the job. And he does. Let's continue reading. Now, let's first remember, who is Jesus talking to again? Who is he talking to? He's talking to the religious leaders. So up to this point, all the religious leaders are going like, yes, you know, yes, he deserves it. He's, so Jesus is kind of setting them up. You know, he's talking to them and he's setting them up. So let's read Luke 15, verses 17, 20. He says, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be your son. Make me one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. Now, typically, whenever we read this, we go like, oh, how sweet. He repented, you know. He's, he's a penitent son. But that's not true. That's not true. And this is, here is why he's not, that is not true. He's not, uh, he's not repented about this. First, he's thinking of the hired servants who not only have food, but have food to spare. So it's also selfish. He's not thinking about himself. And the second thing is that he prepares a false repentance. This repentance that he gives at this particular moment is the same. The, 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 the Jewish leaders, uh, the, uh, the, the, Jewish, the religious leaders would have recognized it because this is the false repentance that was said by Pharaoh in Exodus. Same, same, um, um, same false, uh, false statement, false, statement, uh, false um, um, repentance. And this is what the son is doing. This is what he's trying to do. The other thing is that he doesn't say that I'm going to go to my father and say, I'm going to become a slave or a servant, which meant that he's going to work for free and not be paid. What does he say? He wants to become a hired servant. What that basically meant, he was trying to manipulate his father so that his father can set him up as an apprentice for one of the skilled craftsmen and so that he can be able to get all the skills that this craftsman has, and as he gets the skills, he'll be able to work, make some money. After he makes some money, he can be able to restore or buy the land, and after he buys the land, then he can revoke the cutting off ceremony. We always think that he was repenting. He wasn't repenting. He was trying to find a way back to his father and his family and his community. Friends, how many times do we try and do that? How many times do we try and earn or work for our salvation? Try and work hard so that we can make, turn God's hand and twist God's hand to be on our side. Now, the son does not understand the gravity of his mistake. He thinks, that he, what, he thinks it's about all the money that he has lost. Not realizing is that it's about his father's broken heart. He doesn't realize that he's broken his father's heart. We, in many times, do that. We forget that it's about God wants us to come into an intimate relationship with him. It's not about us trying to earn and try and get grace and goodness through our deeds. Let us continue. Luke 15, verse 20 to 24, he says, But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and he was filled with compassion. And he said, he ran, he ran to him, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to the father, Father, I have sinned against heaven against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to the servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Once again, we see a father's unexpected response. 
because this son comes back. And what was expected? That if this son came back, and the Jewish leaders who are listening are already crafting, already thinking about what his, the father is supposed to do. He's supposed to make him confess, make him pay back, make him adhere to all the laws that he's broken. And maybe in years to come, when he's able to pay back the land and bring back all that he had lost, then he can only be brought back in. But what does the father do? He does what is mostly unexpected. Now, up to this point, the religious leaders have been with Jesus. They're tracking with him. They're going like, Jesus, we're with you. We love you. We hear you. But at this particular time, he throws them a curveball that all of a sudden, his, the, resp uh, the response of the father shocks them because this is not the response that they expected to have. The father surprises us with an expected love, with scandalous grace. Now, he sees him from afar. Now, it wasn't that he was just standing one day and he decided, oh, this is my son, and he runs to him. No, this is a father who had been agonizing and anticipating for the son's return. And so when he's always keeping a look, and now in places like this, in these villages, there's only one road in, one road out. So he's looking out and anticipating, and when he sees the son, he runs to him and tries and grabs him. Do you know why the father had to do that? Because he had to get him before the village got hold of him. He was going to get him before the village got hold of him and be able and, and start beating him and cursing him and doing all the crazy things because of shaming his father and his community. And so the father does things that are unexpected. He does what a Jewish man was not supposed to do. It says he ran to him. Now, this word run is the same word as a foot race. And so what he'd have to do is to hike up his garments and expose his legs. One of the most abominable things for a Jewish man to do was to show his legs. And what does he do? He shows his legs, gets up and runs and gets the son before the village and the people get hold of him. Shaming himself, publicly shaming himself so that he can surround his son with so much love. And, 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 and responding in a way that is contrary to what is expected to him. Father runs. And before he can finish his speech, what does the father do? He calls his servants and tells them, put a robe on him, put a ring on him, put sandals on him, and kill the fattened calf. Now, remember that this guy's garment, the robe that he's talking about, is one robe. And it's a symbol of honor. It's what dignifies the father in this place. He says, put that robe on him. Bring that ring, the marker of authority and identity, and put that on him. Bring sandals and kill the fattened calf. Now, there are not many fattened calves. Now, in Kenya, we kill goats, you know, for Christmas. That's what we have on Christmas. So we fatten one of the big goats and we kill it. It's like giving that. And now this fattened calf was eaten by 200 people. So is the father really throwing a party for the son? No, he's throwing a party for himself. And so he invites a whole community. And basically what he's saying, that I'm not allowing you to cut off my son. I still love him and I've given my markers, my attributes on him, my identity, my authority, my ring, my everything is on him at this particular moment. And so this is what he's saying. He's saying, he's showing publicly that he loves his son. Unexpected love from a father. This story is not about a son who leaves. It's about a father who relentlessly pursues and comes after us. He does that publicly. Now, at that particular moment, it's a sudden shock of the father's public humiliation to protect him from the village that triggers authentic reconciliation. He sees his father hurting for him. Friends, it's not the nails that held Jesus up on the cross. It's you and I. It's my sin. It's your sin that holds Jesus up to the cross. It's love that holds him up there. 
of all the reactions, this is the most shocking and the most unexpected to the religious leaders. And they're thrown for a loop because they cannot understand this kind of love. Verse 25. Meanwhile, the older son is in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him, what's going on? Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went and pleaded with him. But he answered, Father, look, look, all these years I've been slaving for you. You've never disobeyed your orders. You have never given me even a young goat so I can celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf. My son, the father said, you're always with me and everything I have is yours. But when he had, he had, but we had to celebrate uh, we had to celebrate and be glad because his brother of yours was dead and is alive. He was lost and he is found. Here, the older brother's reactions are just as bad as the prodigal son, if not worse. The first son is lost in wickedness. The second son is lost in goodness. Jesus captures both the sinners and the righteous, the Habarim and the Amharets. Because these are the two people that Jesus is talking to. The older son was expected to honor the father. He was expected that if the father is throwing a party for his friends and the community, what is expected is that the son was to come in and join in and join in the celebration. But what does he do? He shames him publicly. And so the father has to leave the party, come out, and start pleading with him. It says he pleaded with him. Now, a good example, if you want to think about this, think about if you're having a wedding for your family member and maybe for a son, and one of your other sons is standing outside the wedding with a bullhorn screaming and shouting and cursing the family and shaming them and saying that this marriage would not work. That is the kind of shame that he's putting upon his father at this particular time. He was doing a despicable thing. He was shaming his father. But what does the father do? He goes out and once again, this loving father goes and starts pleading with him, begging him, when the son says, look, which is a very, it's a very rude way to speak to your father. I know that coming from Kenya. I never call, you don't, you don't even address my father by his first name. That's the rudest thing you could ever do. He doesn't say Abba or father. What does he say? He says, look. Now, attitude and disrespect in front of people. The son, this son is also doing it again. He's doing exactly what, if not worse, of what the prodigal son had done. And the father's reaction to him, he says, he tells him, my son, beloved son. And once again, he pleads with him. Now, in that culture, men never plead. Women plead, kids plead, but never would a Jewish man plead with his son. He pleads with him over and over again. This father surprises us by how he responds. He responds by giving over his possessions, by protecting his son from the village, by publicly humiliating himself, by pleading with the older son. For this deed, for what the son had done, you know what the father was expected to do? He was expected to take him, send him out, send the servants and tell the servants, beat him and, and push him away. That is what the father was expected to do, but he doesn't do that. Now, the complaints of the Pharisees against Jesus are seen in the older son as he rejects his father and his father's words. This story, my friends, is about a love-sick father who over and over humiliates himself for the sake of gaining relationship with his two sons who have shamed and broken his heart over 
and over again. Friends, while we were yet sinners, Jesus Christ died for us. While we were yet sinners, Jesus died for us. You see, Philip Yancey in his book, What's So Amazing About Grace, says this statement and he says this, all too often, and I'll quote him, all too often the church holds up a mirror reflecting back the society, uh, reflecting back the society around it rather than a window revealing a different way. All too often, we as the Christians stand up and hold a mirror to the society so that they can see themselves and see all that is going on that is wrong instead of holding up a window that they can see a different way forward. See, this son had forgotten that the, everything that he had been given, everything, who owned, who owned the, the, the property at that particular time? He did. But he's trying to manipulate his father. He's telling him, you've never given me a goat. He owned everything. He had the right of possession. The only thing he did not have is the right to dispose. Until his dad died, he could not, uh, dis- disposition was not in his hands. But possession was his, everything was his. But once again, he tries to bring his righteousness, his goodness. I have done right. I have done good. I have done all these things. Not realizing he's trying to manipulate his father. You see, we as Christians don't want to get humiliated like the father did for the sake of others. Instead, what do we do? We create hoops. We make it difficult for others to come. And instead of joining the party and celebrating, what do we do? We stand out and protest and once again humiliate our father. But what does he do? He comes once again and pleads and begs and does the unexpected. You see, for those that have messed up and for those that think that they have lost it, do not wait. Do not wait until you get it right because the father already gives you grace even before you've asked for it, before the son could even say, I'm sorry, he's already out there, he's already out there receiving him and blessing him. Before the older son could even repent, what does he do? He loves and pleads with him. This is the amazing thing about grace. And for those that are fast that are in church, is there a chance that we here in Huntington Beach could celebrate even before, even when the ugliest of the ugliest comes, to our place. Could this be the place? Could Huntington Beach be the place where people who are the worst of their worst can come to him? You see, for me, one of the things that I came to realize is that forgiveness or repentance is not sometimes, is not always altruistic. When I was 17 years old, I faced a seven-year jail term in Kenya. And at that particular time, I was so at the end of my all that I decided to ask for forgiveness and ask for repentance but that's because I had no way out. And God in his mercy was gracious and he gave me a way out. Instead of getting seven years, I was released and ended up getting a second chance to life. But you'd think after that I would get out and start living a fulfilled life and a great life and turning away. I didn't. I still struggled in so many areas. But when you come into the kingdom of God, when I came in, I started now putting barriers for other people and saying, I think, I don't think that person is worthy of the grace that I have received. You see, we can be the both sons. We can be on both sides of the, of, of the, of the, of the, of the camps. We think that grace is for sinners. 
We think that grace is for sinners, but quite honestly, grace is even for us as a religious people. This is a scandalous grace of God. It's so scandalous that we cannot, we don't even know how to respond. He's supposed to, uh, the way he's supposed to respond to the sons, he doesn't respond that way. What does he do? He over and over again shames himself, takes the pain, takes the hurt so that he can embrace the son, both of them. My friends, as we hear this story, we're reminded, as we hear this story, we would, we, we, I'm reminded of that thing that I opened with. Can we stand in awe of this God who has so dearly loved us? Do we really believe that God is this good? Because if we believe that he is this good, then we would not stop and would not stop at anything but celebrate those that is coming back. And it doesn't matter where you are. It doesn't matter how messed up your life is. You can come back and God will start doing an amazing new work. Huntington Beach, this morning, I'm inviting you to stand in awe of this God. I'm inviting you to stop and, 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 and embrace this Father's love that is so drastic, so huge, that we cannot even fathom it with our finite minds. That we can stand in awe of him and stand and be amazed by his amazing grace. This morning, I'd ask you to stand up with me. And as Jairus and the team leads us in, 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 in a few songs of worship, would you be for one moment, just one moment, be marveled at the grandeur and the goodness and the beauty of this father who over and over again humiliates himself, himself for the sake of his two sons. It's a beautiful moment for us to stand in awe of God. What's so amazing about grace? It's not for us to give. It's not for us to give. It's for him to give to whoever he chooses to and not for us to hold on to. You see, one of the biggest things that we could do, one of the biggest things that religious people, we, we could hide behind religion. But God is saying, I love you just like you are, just as you are. A scandalous love, a scandalous grace, amazing grace, how sweet the sound. What a scandalous and beautiful grace. Could we this morning just stop and stand in awe of God's amazing grace?